Okay, good evening everyone. Um, it's a great honour and privilege to be spending my Sunday evening speaking with you, Angela. And thank you to the Concordia Forum for setting, up, uh, for setting this up and for you to take, taking the time to join us for what should be a great chat. Uh, so to begin, over the past six months, we've had, uh, you've been participating in late night Brexit votes, a uh, cold and wet general election, a long yet successful deputy leadership campaign, and now a global pandemic. Um, are you tired? You know, what have these past few months been like for you mentally and physically? I mean, I thought that when I was elected in 2015, things couldn't have got any crazier because if you, if we rewind back to back in 2015, um, we had our front bench suddenly went on the back bench. Our back bench, who were a niche sport, ended up on the front bench. And uh, we ended up with the EU referendum result, which nobody expected it to be what it was. Um, my friend within 12 months was assassinated. Uh, in the UK, uh, Joe Cox, and um, it was I was promoted three times in in about eighteen months, and I took on being a whip. And um, two of our great colleagues uh, died in that period. Michael Meacher, the by-election, I, I oversaw that, and Gerald Kaufman, I was the whip that oversaw that. I became shadow pensions minister when we had the BHS pensions crisis, the single tier state pension, and the Tata Steel crisis. Uh, they moved me from there into um, the, uh, the brief of education and then we had the most biggest reforms to education legislatively wise um, in a generation with the higher education and tertiary bill and the green paper on segregation as I called it, selective education. And um, I think they just thought it was just a trouble causer. So we had numerous elections after that. Every year, I think we had an election. Uh, we had the uh, coup, as we called it, as, again, where Jeremy was re-elected. And then, like you say, in recent times, we've had uh, global pandemics, a leaked report and everything else. And I think in the last couple of weeks, the only thing that hasn't passed by my desk is murder. Fingers crossed, that's not going to happen. How do you deal with this then, right? As as a as an individual, I mean, you could you could quite easily have taken a back seat after all of that, after the election, just sat on the back benches for a few years. Um, yeah, how do you get around that kind of stress and motivate yourself to keep picking yourself up and and having another go? Do you know what? I think the only thing that sort of kept me through is my upbringing was very chaotic. Um, I talk about it a little bit about my background and um, I never really felt I had a stable place and felt loved or wanted. So I was quite, quite feral as a child. So life for me was always quite chaotic and um, quite combative. Even at school, I wasn't considered one of those children that was going to do well. Um, so going into Parliament and it turning into the chaos that it was actually, I didn't have the privilege of and the academic education that others had had or the stable upbringing. So for me, that chaos actually was a place where I thrived quite well because I was quite used to feeling on edge, feeling a little bit nervous. And, um, and, and so therefore I found it a lot easier to adapt to the situation that I was in. And as a trade union official for a number of years as well, anyone who's been a trade union rep will tell you there's no handbook for it. You just literally get thrown in 
at the deep end and, and I was thrown in at equal pay in local government and health so we had single status and agenda for change which was a massive reorganisation and the branch secretary at the time it was like the Made in Dagenham film because I was a home carer, manual worker and he was like tick tick she can come along to the meeting and, and then all of a sudden I found myself uh, negotiating with Gordon Brown for capitalisation to fund equal pay in local government so I kind of got used to being in those circumstances so I found it um, and this is going to sound a bit strange but I found it quite reassuring in the chaos as in some ways other people found that really stressful. Cool so I thought the way we do this is you have to have a bit of a chat like what we're doing now um, and then I'm going to put some questions which has a keen digital democracy advocate that I am I've been crowdsourcing and thank you for, for retweeting those calls as well no like questions to be scared of because it's Sunday and even politicians deserve a bit of a break um, and then maybe we can we can take some questions I think from the audience but to start with um, global pandemic you're in opposition Boris has a massive majority what role does a Labour Party have to play in this uh, you know, tell us what that what that's been like yeah uh, thanks do you know what it's been really tough uh, especially for me because I'm a street fighter so I go in there and you know I'm like I'm your footballer that puts both you know both lots of heels in I'm like straight in there and rugby tackle or whatever else so I found this really difficult because um one of the things that we, one of the things that in opposition you find and this has been really frustrating from the start is you, you, you have no power to change anything you can lobby um and you can push and embarrass the government into making change but you really can't do it yourself and in these times, people don't want you to embarrass the government. People don't want you to take pot shots at the government uh, to bring about change because they just see that as politicising. They want you to work with the government. And of course, the government are not really that forthcoming on working with us because obviously they're still trying to mitigate what is uh, an extraordinary circumstance for them. But there's been massive mistakes that have been made. And I'm chomping at the bit to get at them because as a home carer, I just find the way in which our older people in care homes are literally sat there waiting for death, quite frankly, because the government had this herd immunity strategy or at least go slow strategy from the start. I'm really struggling because I want to get at them, but obviously the general public want us to be constructive. And there is obviously a time and a place to go at them within that. So I do think we have to try and be as constructive as we can. But I'm really passionate about that day will come when those questions are going to have to be answered as well. And there's still a lot of work for us to do, you know, that we've heard today about doctors having to source their own PPE still. It's just not, not good enough, you know. Companies, British companies having to uh, export goods that will help on the front line because our government is not purchased or procured them from them. Uh, these are really challenging issues that we're pushing the government on. But to be honest, it has been challenging for me, more so I think than for Keir, because Keir um, has been quite forensic and has been a public prosecutor. So I think he's worked in that field before in a way that is less combative. Whereas for me, I just, I just want to get at them because I think what they've done is a real scandal. Yeah, my, my brother's a doctor in Scotland and he's pretty scathing about how the government has been responding. I remember he was particularly angry about the, the herd immunity uh, comments. Um, but what does that actually mean in terms of you know, working with the government? Like, is that just constructive criticism? Would you join, would you think there should be a national government of unity, that kind of thing? Or what does that actually mean in, in, in practice? 
I mean, I don't think I don't think we should have a, a government of national unity. I don't think it's it's required, to be honest. And I think we have to be uh, effective opposition. And I think Keir's been done a really good job of that. And actually, Keir's like um, the guy that's perfect for these times because if you look at Boris and the way in which um, Boris his whole persona and personality as a politician, and almost me to that degree as well, because I'm a bit a bit of a character. Um, it's not quite what people are looking for. They want someone who they consider to be really strong and really um, forensic and constructive. And Keir is all of those things. So actually, Keir is like the perfect politician to be the leader of our party at this time, I think. Uh, others are probably thinking, come on, Keir, go in there and give him a bit more, you know, and, and I push him to push a bit more at times as well. Um, but I actually think he's got a really good balance. And there is a time and a place for us to go back to what's happened especially we can't go we can't change what the government did in the early days we can't change what they decided but there will be a time and a place for us to ask those permanent those really serious questions about why the government chose the path they did and it's interesting because i watched gove today do the daily briefing and there's a line that they keep saying and that's that this is a new virus you know this is a global pandemic but of course we knew from the report in 2016 that the government knew that a global pandemic was going to be the biggest threat to us we knew that what was happening in italy we knew what was happening in wuhan and other areas we we had foresight to deal with these things so cut the baloney yes it is difficult i totally understand that it is difficult but choices political choices that this government have made have i believe added to our death toll and added to our adequacy to deal with this virus some people don't want to hear that at the moment and i totally understand that but i'm passionate to get to the bottom of that because i do believe um it has put especially people on the front line our health workers health workers dying because they haven't had the ppe they deserve their families deserve answers yeah but i totally agree uh, one thing i've I felt is it seems like the government is still in election mode almost in some of their comms. So take, for example, just framing it like, uh, like we're in a war and therefore health workers are sacrificing their lives, which I think is, is not the case. People are, I think a lot of these deaths are negligence more than, more than sacrifice like you would have a soldier. But also things like this um, 100,000 a day test, like they could have just put their hands up and said, we had a target, we didn't quite meet it, but we're doing a lot of tests. But instead, they've, they've basically fudged the figures on that. Um, is that something that you, you get a similar sense of? Do you, do you see it as the government also thinking about the next election, as well as just dealing with things now? Absolutely. I think, I mean, politics is politics, regardless of what, what else is going on. And, and to be honest, at a time of, um, if you look at our international work, if you look at um, our economy, if you look at things like how we deal with a crisis of this magnitude, politics comes into it. You can't hide from that. People keep saying, take the politics out of it. <laughs> the politics is right in there. And that's why things happen in the way that they do. That's why New Zealand responded in a different way to how America responded into a different way on how we respond. So I do think there is an issue around the politics have to be, have to be in there and the government are still playing politics and it's interesting because if we attack them in the uk parliament they go this is terrible you shouldn't be attacking us but if you look at what the conservatives are doing in wales 
to the Welsh Labour government, they're really kicking them, like proper going at them and trying to undermine and attack them. So it's quite interesting the way in which politics is playing out. Um, and then if you look at internationally how different political parties are responding in opposition, uh, it does seem to be that at this moment in time, um, opposition that seem to go on the attack uh, very much the public aren't, um, aren't pleased about that. So there is a way in, in how we go about trying to be constructive at the moment. And I think that's the right approach. But it doesn't mean to say that I'm not incredibly angry and going at them on these issues as well. And anyone who watches my Twitter feed, and in fact, I think me and Alistair Campbell ended up on the wrong side of the uh, media the other week when Boris came back and everyone was saying, isn't it wonderful how Boris has returned? And I said, well, let, let's see some action first. Uh, and I got a load of grief for it. But I just think it's the right thing to do. My instinct tells me if someone's doing something wrong, um, as a leader, it's my obligation, even when it's not popular, to call it out. And that's one thing I learned from Jeremy Corbyn, actually, is even when you, everybody else says it's wrong, if you think it's the right thing to do, you should do it. So, so talk to us about Keir Starmer then. What's his leadership style like? How is it different to Jeremy Corbyn? And given, given his initial challenge of... Um, the, talk, the Conservative Party's majority, uh, Brexit, uh, the Red Wall, and now on top of that, this uh, pandemic might also boost support for the, uh, the government and makes it much harder for opposition parties to raise any other kind of issue. And like you said, and criticise the government, that is now also a, something that might lose votes. Um, how do you think Keir Starmer will guide Labour to a victory at the next general election? I think there's a couple of things really. He has to learn that, um, I think one of the things that our party has to recognise is it wasn't just Jeremy Corbyn that cost us the votes. And if anyone thinks that if only we'd got rid of Jeremy Corbyn, we'd have won the election, then they're deluded. The rot in the Labour Party and the problems in the Labour Party was not Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn was a symptom. He was, um, he was an antidote to some of the issues that people felt around Labour representing them and understanding their views and listening to them. And Keir's got a real job on his hands to connect back with people and to bring the party together. And I, I genuinely, honestly think that Keir wants to do that. I was, I was as worried and apprehensive as anybody. I didn't want to go back to Magnolia politics. I thought that is going to be really bad. And especially not as deputy leader. Oh, this is going to be terrible. I mean, when I went into parliament, I thought I was on the naughty step with Dennis Skinner for the rest of my career. And then I got on the front bench and it was, and everything that I did was like, I was really happy about. Um, so I don't want to go back to, you know, you know, um, massaging welfare reformers this has to happen and austerity I thought forget that and actually reassuringly uh, Keir is very much in that space so I think we've got to be bold on the economy we can't have business as usual if we if we don't continue with the work that uh, John McDonnell was doing around a new economic plan especially now especially now after what's happened with this global crisis then I think Labour Party's finished we've got to be bold and radical on things like that uh, but we've also got to um, come together as a party we can't be factionalizing anymore because if we do that and we fight each other then people aren't willing to listen to us and that's difficult because you know we do fight a lot and we do tend to get fixated on our, our little pet projects in the movement and sometimes you find it really difficult to see beyond that and there's a lot of grievances out there I mean that leaked report just just lays bare 
the grievances that are in our movement and as somebody who's been in it a while and on the front um, front bench I can tell you I've had my fair share of grievances myself but you've got to put them to one side because if we keep fighting we'll we'll never win a general election so I would say Keir has to reach out he has to listen but he has to be bold so he has to dig himself out of his safe zone and really push forward and have that credibility as well in the way in which he does it so working with economists working with experts to really push that agenda forward and i think the environment that we're in at the moment allows some of that as well we could seize the opportunity i think the next general election will be decided in the next six to twelve months and how we respond and how the government responds to this crisis and i think that will frame everything going forward for the next general election so i think it's imperative that we come up with a bold future that people can buy into that people are um, excited about about what labor wants to offer and that we're not stuck in the past yeah so you've mentioned the this leaked labor report um for those who don't know this is a report that was done internally which demonstrated some members of staff as i understand it were working to undermine the party at the general election in 2017 i think i have a drink sorry i'm just drinking coffee. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. i feel yeah, bad i know that it's like ramadan yeah, it's cool. <laughs> absolutely cool. but... really it's absolutely fine okay, go for it um so this leaks labor reports i haven't read it i've got to be honest i've read like snippets of it um but a lot of I understand there's a lot of racism within this report as well to uh, people of colour from uh, staff members in the Labour Party. And you mentioned as well, winning the next election, you, you need to be a united party, you want to end, end the factionalism. And straight away, you've got to deal with this, uh, this report. But it also speaks, I think, a bit more widely to the Labour Party's brand in general as an anti-racist party which um, for many people, especially um, people of colour up and down the country, is one of the great appeals of the Labour Party is that it's an anti-racist <laughs> party. So what, in your view, do you think the Labour Party needs to do, A, about this report and the members who may have been found to be behaving in a racist manner, but also longer term to really rebrand itself as an anti-racist party and, and win back that, that kind of image? Yeah, I think if you if you look at what's happened over the last um, 12 to 18 months, I mean, the anti-Semitism, the racism, and it's not just been in that period, actually, it's been a long time. I mean, as a woman, if you're a woman of colour in the Labour Party, you'll have faced racism and misogynism, like literally every other month. I've, I've seen it myself. And um, I just think... Uh, we have to be professional and be able to deal with these issues effectively. We've just been, I think there's almost a blind spot on the left that if you're a left wing organisation, you can't harbour racists and, you know, people who have anti-Semitic views. I think there's just been like a bit of a blind spot to that. And as an organisation, we've not dealt with these issues effectively enough and quickly enough. So one of the things that me and Keir was very clear on, and we know there's a lot of anger out there, there was a lot of anger before this leaked report, but actually since that, people, um, the goodwill that a lot of people felt after the defeat, because it was a catastrophic defeat in December for Labour uh, at the general election, and a lot of people were soul searching and everybody just wanted to come together to win. People were bruised, we had years of like in opposition, they really desperately were devastated about not winning. But then if we're not able to get our house in order, if we're not able to show that we can deal with racism 
that we can deal with anti-Semitism swiftly, professionally, and with our aims and values, then we, we, we're nothing, we're sunk. So it's one of the first things that me and Keir is very clear on wanting to set that marker down, that line in the sand. And in my uh, speech when I launched to be deputy leader, I said the first line in the sand is uh, racism and anti-Semitism. You cross that line and you're out, end off. There's no education for me. You know, that's the line, educate yourself on that line. And I think unless we're able to demonstrate that, then um, we're sunk, we, we stand for nothing. And we've got an independent report, an independent investigation, which the NEC have agreed it uh, this week. And by mid-July, we'll have a response from that. We've also told the General Secretary that any action that the, um, the party thinks is appropriate, whether that's staff or whether that's through membership, then they take the action. We can't politically interfere with it. This is part of the problem, because this is the problem that Jeremy had. You cannot, as the leader of the Labour Party, politically interfere with a process because a lot of people are saying we need an independent process. Well, you can't then have an independent process that you then go around saying, I want you to do this, this, this. Um, so part of unweeding some of that and then dealing with why isn't this being done and then dealing with that through the appropriate processes has taken far too long. And uh, me and Keir have been very clear that that's got to be dealt with very, very quickly. And it's about culture. The culture in our organisation it comes back to that thing about if you're on the left you can't be racist if you're left-wing you can't be anti-semitic and again there's that culture of um not believing the victim or not dealing with it as effectively and just allowing bad behavior and mitigating bad behavior as oh well they're nice people they couldn't possibly do something that was bad and i think we've just got to start moving to a professional organization and a culture that says actually uh, we don't accept that we don't accept any of that in our organization if you want to be racist or anti-semitic you know you've got no place in the labor party and i'm determined to root it out i've thought it all my life um, I, I was working with hope not hate in oldham when we had the oldham riots i'm an oldham mp and uh, i won't have i had uh, james goddard and others pointing in the face recently uh, attacking me on the streets of Oldham um, when they were trying to make hay out of the EU referendum and I won't go back to that and I certainly don't want to see um, any casual or divert or um, indirect racism in our in our party in our movement and I'm determined to root it out. One one thing which has been quite depressing to see over the, the course of this pandemic are the number of BA, BAME people who have been dying uh, as a result of the coronavirus, the doctors, nurses, other key workers. Uh, and for many Muslims, this Ramadan will be a very depressing uh, Ramadan. It won't be one for, for celebration, it'll be one for mourning. And in response to these um, statistics, the government and Public Health England have appointed uh, Trevor Phillips, who is someone, I understand it, is suspended from the Labour Party for racism, and is someone who has long been criticised for Islamophobia by the Muslim Council of Britain and many other leading figures uh, within the community, Muslim and non-Muslim. Uh, what is the Labour Party, do you think this is a good appointment? And if, if not, what do you think the Labour Party should be doing? What is the Labour Party doing to, to challenge this? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it's a good appointment because people have raised concerns from the Muslim community about his appointment because of his past comments and I think um, the government have appointed them and they have to answer to that because the most important thing about this um, inquiry is that it's swift and it has the confidence of people to do the job that it's meant to do. Uh, we uh, launched our own inquiry which we've got Doreen Lawrence who's chairing that 
And I think it's really important that we get to the bottom of the issue and don't lose sight of that. But I, I, if people don't have the confidence because of their comments and their views, then I think it's, it's not good and it's not helpful for the government to appoint people to do, to do that role, however well intended they might think it is. I don't think it's responsible. It comes back to my original point about in the Labour Party, if somebody does something like that, you can't, you can't then mitigate and say, oh, it's okay, or they've done lots of other nice wonderful things if it's, it's not acceptable um i do think that there is a, a really really um there is a, a pressing need to deal with this issue about how coronavirus is affecting the black and minority ethnic communities i mean 14 doctors have died and the 14 doctors that have died have been from the BAME community i mean that is quite a shocking statistic and a third of all people in icu are from the BAME community and that's actually quite a significant amount more than the proportion in, in the general population. So it's pretty clear there's a trend here that's showing that there is a disproportionate impact. Now, uh, whether that's genetic, whether that's uh, social economic or some of the other factors, uh, I don't know, but there is certainly a significant issue here that um, needs to be dealt with, not just long grasped into an inquiry, but needs to be dealt with as a matter of urgency because people are losing their lives and we can't shy away from that, from that issue. So I'd like to see the government working with the clinicians to see this as a matter of priority. And I know that some of the uh, studies through Oxford University and others have been looking at this particular issue and we've been pressing the government. I know that Keir in his meetings with uh, the Prime Minister pressed it at his last meeting around making sure that the government are seeing this as a, as a huge priority. So what do you think the government is doing then, therefore, by appointing someone like uh, Trevor Phillips to, to head up such an important inquiry? Do, do, does that scream of a government that's taking it seriously or is he just well regarded despite being suspended from the Labour Party and despite the criticism that he's received? I mean, that's, I mean, the government will have to answer as to why they decided that they thought he was the appropriate person, given the past comments and given that um, I don't believe he has the confidence of all of the community that he's, uh, he's, he's meant to be doing the inquiry on behalf of. I, I think that the government needs to reflect on that, you know. I think the most important thing, the government get on and do the job and they don't want to distract from that by putting someone in the job who some would say is completely unfit to be there. I personally wouldn't have put him in that position. Um, we've got Doreen Lawrence working with us and I think that's a really good appointment and um, I, I just, I think the government have to answer to that and they have to answer to, to why they decided that that was the right thing to do. I personally wouldn't have made that decision. Okay, so moving on to one of the uh, questions that we had crowdsourced. Uh, one is on education. So you were a very popular Shadow Education Secretary during your time. Uh, one of the the big impacts that the virus is going to have is on uh, educational attainment. So there was a report that came out recently from the Sutton Trust, which showed that private schools uh, are, more private schools are doing online learning courses versus state schools, and therefore the gap between the two during this period could widen even further. And it's not something that is going to last just a few months, but obviously could last uh, years or even a generation just having one year out of education um, what do you think should be done uh, to uh, address this this issue well it has a it has a huge impact and um, it's funny because some people have said the coronavirus has been the great leveler you know uh, on inequality but it hasn't it's actually 
uh, pushed the inequalities and shown the inequalities really stark. And you're absolutely right, the attainment, it's really frightening. One of the first things I did as Shadow Education Secretary, which was strange for me, was support the government in a bill that was going through um, and a legal case to challenge taking children out of school for holidays during term time. And uh, throughout that whole debate, time after time, all the evidence was showing even two weeks off a child being off has a significant impact on their attainment, especially children from disadvantaged backgrounds. So this period will have a significant impact for them. So we've been pushing the government. Um, I mean, they couldn't even get the food vouchers right. I, I'm absolutely petrified. One of the things that kept me awake at night in my brief, and it still haunts me now, is the amount of children that are not necessarily on the at-risk register, but just below that. Because getting on the at-risk register or getting to be a child that's considered at need uh, is quite difficult. It's not an easy thing to happen. Um, and there's so many children now that are not going to get the support and they're not going to get the health and the education that they need. There's going to be a massive uh, lag in terms of trying to help them along. Uh, I do think we have to consider, we, we've had the Easter holiday and we've had a couple of weeks off now. And we do need to consider about other holidays coming forward if they start to lift the lockdown and how we can prioritise making sure that the children who need it the most are able to get back into school as quickly as possible when it's safe for them to do so. And I think, you know, the the stuff they did around making sure that Ofsted wasn't a priority, and that was really good. Uh, we pushed for that, you know ending SATs and silly things like that, making sure we have post-qualifications -quali admissions. I think that can last. The things that I'd pushed for will really help um, children from disadvantaged backgrounds. But the government are going to have to come up with um, a, a system that allows our young people to catch up and to gain pace. I'm particularly worried about year 10, because the year 10 students now are the ones that will be sitting their exams next year. And they'd normally do, be doing all of the studying now and therefore they're not going to be getting that study time in. So there is going to be implications as a result of this coronavirus. And in some ways, the students that were not able to sit their exams this year um, may be in a better situation because they can appeal if they don't get the results they want. And potentially they, they can push to get, um, to, to get predictive grades that are based on an assessment from the teacher. Um, which might work out for them, but the next year, however, they're not going to have that, but they're going to have this uh, lag because they've not been, not been in education at the moment. So the quicker we can get the schools back in to education, especially for those disadvantaged children, the better for their welfare as well as their education outcomes. Is there anything we can do, we can do now? So given the, we don't know how long this um, lockdown will last for, um, could we be doing something like distributing laptops to all of these year 10s, broadband vouchers, uh, big ideas on a similar level to the proposals that, proposals that have been put forward for uh, jobs. Um, it doesn't seem like there's, there's much coming out on that. Does, does the Labour Party have any policy ideas um, that could be implemented now that could reduce yeah. that? I mean, but just before I left the brief, I was working with um, Gavin. Well, I was actually working on the DfE. I'd, I had access to the top officials because I was literally pushing them uh, along on what I felt they should be doing, especially on the voucher system. But I also had this thing around white space, they called it, which was around, you know, lots of kids have mobile phones these days, but you, you ask them to use the data on education, they tell you to sod off, wouldn't they? <laughs> they use the, the mobile phone data to do educational stuff. So it was about creating 
creating um, space, uh, uh, online space for these young people and creating um, laptops and access to mo mobile devices if they don't have it. And I know a lot of work's gone on. The government have been a bit slow on it, but I know that organisations have done that. So locally, it's a bit patchy, but a lot of areas have done some work on that and schools themselves. I mean, I've got to pay credit to schools because, you know, I was literally having head teachers contact me because they couldn't get hold of the DfE saying, Ange, you know, what should we do? And I'm like, just get on with it. The government aren't going to let you go bankrupt. So just do it and then claim the money back. And luckily, a lot of schools did that. They, they made sure there was food provision. They made sure that they had um, schoolwork for the children at home. They purchased laptops if they felt it was necessary for these young people. Because schools know them better than, schools know their children better than anyone. And the schools have taken control of it a little bit themselves where the government have failed. Uh, and it's testament to them and the teachers really that they've done that work. But uh, the government do need, that they, I mean, it's like in everything, they've been really slow to respond to this issue and it's been really frustrating so things are starting the cogs are starting to turn a little bit now um but again it's just there's no i've seen more going a sick note than this government you know it's just not really got up into its gears it's not really noticed and seen what's happening you know it's like the house is burning around you and they're still thinking that they've got a little tiny fire and they'll put it out you know they just haven't been able to respond in the bold way in which they've needed to but I would say that on schools and students a lot of the uh, colleges a lot of the schools have done a tremendous job on providing especially for those children and pupils that need it the most. So another question we got was from someone called Ronald on Twitter and he was a new starter who's been unable to retain his job under the coronavirus job retention scheme as he wasn't paid through PAYE by, by the cutoff date on the scheme and he, he was very concerned there's a lot of people <coughs> in a situation like him who have no support um, and Labour as the party of workers um, do you have any uh, ideas on what could be done about this are you challenging the government on this um what do you think what do you think needs to be done for the for these workers yeah i mean ed Miliband did a piece uh, i think it was today in the guardian and because he's our new base uh, shadow secretary and there is massive and annalise dodds our shadow chancellor has been working on this massive gaping holes in the furlough scheme as it stands as well as for small and medium businesses as well and the support that's offered to them so we've been pushing for businesses to have a hundred percent guarantee on the loans i think that's really crucial that that happens and also that there's a medium term issue so first of all we've got to help those that fall out of the furlough scheme currently and that's like your the person who you spoke about and universal credit is just not fit not fit for purpose and you know the delay and, and the amount of income that it gives to people is absolutely degrading and people that are in between jobs have found themselves in great uh, difficulty but the furlough scheme as it currently states as well is that medium term there's going to be a lot of businesses that are not going to come out of this or will not be in a position where they can support their workers immediately so the furlough scheme has to be flexible and there's going to have to be a recognition for more support at the end of that and potentially transition for people because even when they come out of that system even those that are within the furlough scheme they're, they're, they may not be coming back to the, in, the industry that they went into so we've got to start planning now and I think you know my national education service that I proposed on the lifelong learning I think the government needs to literally put like um, put a rocket up it and do that now 
start doing online open university do that while people are at home now and start looking at how we can uh, transition people into the new technologies or the new industries and and that will give people hope as well if you can do some free online learning um, at a time where we're in this certain circumstances and lockdown and you're potentially frightened because the job that you've always done might not be available to you going forward why are we wasting this time now why don't we give people that opportunity to learn new skills and i think the government are missing a trick on that and could really start to rev up some of the uh, new technologies and new industries of the future um, and we can assess that now and start developing people for those roles that we need going forward and i think for people even like the person that um spoke to you about um moving from one job to the next and being caught literally right in that middle having that opportunity to do some free training on, on on a new skill actually um during this crisis might actually make them feel a little bit better about that so i think the government could do more on lifelong learning and free education for people whilst they're currently on lockdown and that'll help people's mental health as well but it will also plan for the economy of the future that we know is going to be significantly different and they're not doing enough to plan on that at the moment they've just gone right furlough that's it right great let's wait actually you can't do that there's so much more that you're going to have to do to plan how we move our economy forward in the long term and medium term because it's going to be significantly difficult for us for a number of years and we're not going to have austerity mark too i can tell you that the, the the people of this country should not pay for for this crisis again they've they've paid enough and our frontline workers who are low paid who are the most insecure have paid a, a lot over this crisis and they need they need to be they need to be supported through this not not penalized again so another question from my very good friend tess who works for a charity called health poverty action is related to prisoners and the coronavirus so obviously there's a there's a high risk for prisoners uh, and getting the virus which means that actually their sentences might end up as death sentences in a worst case scenario and in particular, she, her question is about the one in eight prisoners who are incarcerated for drug offences. And her question is whether Labour has, uh, or whether you and Labour Party has any thoughts on following the footsteps of some states in the United States um, and elsewhere about decriminalisation of uh, drug offences and taking a more public health approach. I've, I've always had a very public health approach to this problem and actually if you look at what um, Scotland did on stuff like knife crime for example when they looked at it from a public health perspective they were able to bring knife crime down and actually support people uh, and I, I think the same for drug and alcohol I come from a social services adult social care background so I get quite passionate about it I think when you criminalize people for an addiction in that way um, you're not helping anybody and there is a particular issue in our justice system at the moment because it isn't fit for purpose and it isn't working and our prisons are stuffed full of people who um, are uh, more prone to become criminals when they leave prison than they were when they went in so we've got to have a system that supports people that you know victims feel uh, that works for them but also that people who have been victims and often a lot of people prisoners are victims themselves in in some way uh, are supported to rehabilitate and become um good members of society again and in this coronavirus the government have been again slow to act on how they can support 
um, prisoners. They've got a duty of care for prisoners, whether some people think you should just lock them away and throw away the key or not. It's not how we work in this country. There's a duty of care for them and the government have failed in their duty of care. And David Lamb has been really pushing on this uh, since he's took over that role and you'll know David Lamb has been particularly uh, vexed over the uh, over the lifetime of his career really about black and minority ethnic uh, uh, prisoners and how they're uh, treated in the justice system so he's got a particular interest to make sure that our justice system is uh, more restorative and looks at a public health approach rather than a criminal approach and I think that's the right way to go about it I think the government are failing really badly at the moment and I know that David's doing a piece of work which hopefully uh, will be pushed forward in the next uh, week or so watch this space but I know that David is very very um, passionate about making sure the government do the right thing here which they clearly not okay so we'll have, we'll have one more question from me and then we'll go to some of the questions in the chat which I know some people have been sending please keep sending them if you have if you have questions for Angela um, so I, I head up a technology policy think tank so this question is about this question is from me it's about um, disinformation so in the last general election we saw huge amounts of um, fake news, disinformation campaigns uh, throughout the election, but also from uh, the government. I don't know if you remember the, the Fact Check UK account on Twitter was quite a notable example, but you also have things like shallow fakes. Um, I was working on a project around deep fakes, which I'm not sure if you know of what those are, but they are videos which you can manipulate of individuals in a, in a way similar to Photoshop. And in this pandemic as the real first disinformation pandemic where you're seeing huge amounts of uh, fake news related to the coronavirus, 5G conspiracies. There was a protest just yesterday by people who think the whole thing is, uh, is made up. And there was a report on the BBC this weekend about uh, the kind of reach that some of these uh, fake news outlets, if you like, are having online and they're having much greater reach than the likes of websites from the WHO and the NHS. Uh, do you have any thoughts on what, you know, what is the Labour Party's position on disinformation? Does it have any big ideas about what should be done? Uh, or is it just up to the social media companies to deal with? Uh, well, first of all, the government can stop lying. I mean, they, they literally, in the general election, you'll know because of the work that you did, that when, when we were fact checks, we were like completely, everything we said was correct. And then the government, everything that they said, they was just pulled up on loads of things that they were saying in the general election that was untrue. And the thing is, is when you do that, as politicians, when you blatantly, you know, misread the facts, shall we say, and you're not allowed to say lie in Parliament, you've got to, you've got to say it was, um, you know, they were mistaken, you're not allowed to call someone a liar, it's unparliamentary, but they lied. Um, and when you do that as a politician, as somebody with a position of influence, you undermine your credibility and that's why I was so annoyed with Matt Hancock and him saying that he's got his hundred thousand when he clearly hasn't he'd, he'd fudged it and I think it undermines what we do so people know that there's there's fake news out there people understand that but um, I think the problem that we have is where we don't police that and where we don't have morals that set a standard in terms of our own conduct, I think it just brings everything down. So I would like to see, I mean, the social media companies have a huge amount of work to do, not just on um, the spreading of propaganda, 
but also on stuff like abuse online and anonymous accounts and things like that. I think it's, you know, there's a, there's a lot more that they could do uh, to stop some of that. I mean, the amount of bots that I've got now and people that are just literally organized just to make me feel like I shouldn't wake up in the morning is quite scary. I think young politicians um, globally, um, people from my background in particular, I really get worried about if they try to put their head above the parapet and to say what well, like literally if i speak on social media I, I get like it's like a swarm and the smp bots are the worst you, you just literally go online a day to tweet something about scotland you'll have a literally 400 random accounts like attack you within half an hour i think there's more that needs to be done about things like that but the spreading of uh, fake news um i think when you've got people like donald trump as the president of the United States who tells people to, you know, just get a bit of disinfectant and stuff. It's really quite worrying. Um, so it's hard to then tell people to, to sort out lay people as such when you've got the president of the United States and the prime minister of this country that quite happily uh, use language. I mean, Boris has used language that's racist, misogynistic, homophobic, and um, and has lied, blatantly lied, and he gets away with it. And so did the uh, president of the United States. So I think that's what we need to fix first of all: is that politicians shouldn't be allowed to go around lying. We thank you for it. <laughs> so we've had a, a couple of questions in the chat. I think privately, but also in the public one um, on Kashmir. So there's a story recently. I think Keir Starmer has repositioned the Labour Party as saying the Kashmir issue is a bilateral issue for Pakistan and India, not one that the rest of the international community should really comment on. Um, and one of the questions was about um, engaging the grassroots community to back Labour and how moves like this can actually distance uh, some of the grassroots from the Labour Party. Do you have any views on this? What was the, was there any particular logic behind that uh, position? Uh, and shouldn't the Labour Party be speaking out on uh, issues like Kashmir? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I'd say that I thought their headline was quite misleading. I was on the call that Keir, Keir was on. Um, and they certainly, I mean, Keir Starmer is past as a human rights lawyer. <laughs> I mean, he's impeccable in terms of his human rights um, record and what he's fought for all his life. So the idea that suddenly he's going to turn his back on human rights abuses that have been that has been stoked up since around 2007 actually in the issues in Kashmir and that suddenly he was just going to be you know oh Modi's all right for his aggressive tone in the way that he's dealing with the issues of Kashmir and his recent announcements on the protection for Kashmir uh, it's just not true it's just not true at all um, human rights abuses anywhere um, has to be called out and we're an international movement you know we, we're not going to sit by and allow countries to to uh, go around uh, flaunting human rights it's if we if we don't stand up for human rights we stand up for nothing so it, it wasn't quite how it was reported and um, the, the what what Keir was saying is what our long-standing policy has been on Kashmir and that's Pakistan and um, India has to come together and find a peaceful resolution that the people of Kashmir should be given the right to self-determination I mean that has been our long-standing um, policy on Kashmir and I think uh, me certainly as somebody who has been a proud supporter of um, standing up for the people of Kashmir I certainly wouldn't sit on a call and watch Keir Starmer just disregard 
those issues. Um, but also, I think we have to recognise that there has been conflict recently. You know, in two, I think it was 2000, there was an issue in uh, in uh, India was attacked and. Uh, there was there was issues between India and Pakistan, and I know the Pakistan Prime Minister did his best to to combat that and support that. And what we've got to do, I think, as uh, the United Kingdom Labour Party, is to to support a peaceful resolution between India and Pakistan, and that means talking to both sides. But it certainly doesn't mean turning our back on human rights abuses, and that's not what my uh, view of what Keir has said or done uh, in his dealings with this issue. I think it's very sensitive. I think uh, trying to stoke it up is not helpful for anybody and that actually what we should be doing is pushing for that peaceful resolution and calling out human rights abuses where we see them. But there is no distinction from that. There is no distinction from that at all in what Keir was saying. What do you think about the wider question of um, re-engaging with the grassroots Labour supporters in the North? Um, you know, obviously you're a Northern MP. Uh, many seats went to the Conservative for the first time. Uh, but also you know, many BME people no longer voting for the Labour Party in, in ways that they used to. Um, how do you, as a party, and I, I originally as well thought it might be interesting to have a Northern MP just to get around that issue, but kind of uh, change my mind on that later on. But how do you, as a, as a party, uh, break out from this, this view of being a London centric party and re-engage with the grassroots out in the country and also in Scotland you mentioned the SNP Labour will need to win back Scotland if they have any chance of, of forming a government what is the Labour Party's approach towards that issue as well? Yeah I mean we, we do have to re-engage and it's not just um, it's interesting because it's not just a north-south divide actually there's a divide between the educated um, people who are getting on and doing well in, in society and people who are considered um, not doing so well. So people from my background, I'm considered uneducated, I'm, I'm cool with that. Um, I haven't got a formal education, I left school without any qualifications and no GCSE, so I'm cool with that. Um, but I've got a, you know, a University of Life degree, so I'm, I'm, I'm happy with that as well. Uh, so it's in no way meant as an offence, but there is a divide between what is the uh, working class as I would see it traditionally, and that's from all different faiths and backgrounds as well, by the way, um, especially in my seat, and the people who are considered to be doing quite well, and what they would consider to be, we call them city dwellers or metropolitans, compared to towns and coastal areas who feel left behind. So there's been a growing divide that's been happening, and it's been happening for a long time, and we've got to start listening to those difficult questions and those difficult challenges that we have. And I think that actually Jeremy was on the right track when he talked about a new economic settlement, because what we what we did when we were last in government and it was really good. We did the education, 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 and we you know did public sector reforms and we put investment, but we never changed the economic outcome. We never changed the way in which our economy works in the United Kingdom. We never invested as a state in places where we needed to, because business can't put that level of risk. The state has to put that investment in as well. And if we're looking at new technologies and the new industries of the future, it's a bit risky. So therefore you have to have state investment in that. And we didn't, we didn't do that work. We went for the low hanging fruit in some of our metropolitan areas and therefore that divide's got greater. We have to be honest about some of those issues and we also have to listen to people, listen to their concerns and start um, take, taking that forward. People have felt like really patronised and it was the same on the Brexit situation in Europe. 
you know, people felt incredibly patronised. I mean, I said in one of my, in, in my, again, in my speech when I stood for deputy leader is we told people to F off and vote Tory and guess what? They did. Um, and if you treat people like that, that actually you just don't understand what I'm saying to you. And I, by the way, I felt that a lot of the time as well, that people were saying to me, what it is, Anne, you just don't quite understand what we're trying to say to you. Um, that's incredibly patronising. And if we actually start listening and start um, showing people that we care about them and that we are them. And again, this is an issue with our BAME community. It's like jam tomorrow. You, you can you can you can have you know you can be around the table but you can't be the person that makes the decision we've got to start opening up our um organization to people of all different backgrounds so it doesn't look like we're just london centric and if we're able to do that and be more diverse about the way in which we do stuff yes it's difficult you'll hear things you don't want to hear uh, but actually um you need to hear that voice and that's the way in which we'll improve and get back into power but that's the fundamental challenge for the Labour Party is um, being ready to listen. Because I think what we've done in the past, we've done it like therapy. Yeah, 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 we know you're upset. But anyway, here's this, instead of actually taking on board what people are saying and, and doing something about that. I understand we have Yasmin Qureshi on the call as well. Is a... I can see her. Hi, Yasmin. <laughs> Yasmin, do you have a question? And then do you have a question as well? I know. Well, firstly, I want to congratulate Angela. I think she'd be a fantastic deputy leader of the party. And I know that she's going to do great work. And Angela, I've been involved in Concordia for the last, I don't know, 10 years, but that's we did, nine years, when I first went to their conference. That's when you were the first ever member of parliament from any political party to come to Concordia. Yeah, that, that was nine when years. When we were a tiny, tiny organisation. Yeah. Uh, so a, thank you for being an early adopter. <laughs> yes, I'm an early doctor and you know an early founding member. So it's really good to have you, and I'm so glad you've taken out time to you know spend some time with us and been hearing you. No, I think I just want to obviously congratulate you. I think you've been brilliant, and I just kind of I mean everybody's talking about COVID, right? But what do you see the future direction of the country once we're out of COVID? A really boring question here, but you know I think. Oh, no, it's not boring. It's like the one that makes me so excited because I just think, Yasmin, you know how difficult it's been to cut through on socialist, like a real socialist. Anyone on this call knows me, Jeremy, really struggled to cut through. I mean, free Wi-Fi, who'd have thought of it, eh? Now all of a sudden everyone's like talking about giving people free Wi-Fi so they can access the internet and stuff. You know, we were called communists and everything else for even suggesting these things. Um, but I think... I've never been more optimistic about changing the country for the better in a more fundamental way, like in a total beverage type way. That's my vision of the future. Not just like tweak it around the edges. Like <coughs> we need this fundamental change in the way that the country operates and what they value. And I think we've really got that opportunity to do this and we've got to get it right. <coughs> and I'm yeah. coughing now, so apologies. <laughs> and now, haven't you? And you've recovered. And uh... you know what? I'm, like I'm six weeks post COVID now, and um, I sound like I smoke sixty caps in a day, but I can clear a room in seconds. I mean, I'm not, I'm not like contagious or anything, but apparently, um, you still have like um, your immune response in your lungs. So my lung capacity is still pretty, pretty shattered compared to what it was. Uh, so now, when I cough, like literally, everyone's like. <laughs> I'm like, I'm okay, I'm, I'm all right. But yeah, I've still got my cough. 
it shall be lawfully a dua for you so that you, you know, recover and get completely. <coughs> I think there may be others now who might want to ask some questions, but lovely to see you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to see you. And do you know what I've got to say while she's on the call as well is that the work that Yasmin's done on, on things like the injustice of um, the, the medication that pregnant women were given, these things that a lot of people don't see, they make such a huge difference to those families who feel like nobody's listening to their plight because it might not be like a big, huge thing. COVID's like a big, huge thing. Everyone knows about it. But the stuff that Yasmin has done to help those families and to support them it's just like she's a little hero for doing it because most people don't know the lengths that a lot of our MPs go to. MPs like Yasmin who quietly get on beavering away and finally get um, recompense and some respect given to those families who need it the most. So hats off to her. She's someone who's mentored me and I'm incredibly proud to call her a colleague. So we've got a few minutes left. I've got a couple of closing questions. The first one, both of them are quite quick. First one, which political party do you think will be the first to have a BME Prime Minister? And if it's the Labour Party, who do you think that would be? It better be the Labour Party. I, I, honestly, I, I'm, it has to be the Labour Party and it has to be one of our amazing women. We've got so many of them. And in fact, if you look at how many BAME women that we now have as parliamentarians that are coming through, like I, I couldn't even tell you there's so many of our women um, members of parliament of colour who could like literally wipe the floor with any one of the front bench currently on the government side and probably most of us a lot as well so watch this space I mean the one thing that I would say is Jeremy's legacy is the diversity and the talent that we've got in the in the parliamentary Labour Party we've got a long way to go and we've got to push further but actually you watch this space I think we've got a woman of colour on our um, benches now who will be the first female black prime minister of this country is that my, my ask oh i mean like there's so many of them now honestly avida there's like you know dr rosanna khan there's yasmin there's so many of them like, I, honestly i literally kate osma this like literally all of my sisters that are in our movement who are out there and by the way they they're like they're sick of jam tomorrow they're not going to be quiet. And I love that. I absolutely love that about them. They are completely empowered and they're like, now I'm going to tell you exactly what needs to happen. And I think that's really inspiring for the next generation. And I've got to put on record that Diane Abbott has done, regardless of what shade of red you are, she has just trailblazed for a lot of our black women, women of colour who have come through because the abuse that Diane Abbott has taken over the years is just absolutely shocking absolutely shocking um but i'm telling you that legacy is coming i feel it i feel that revolution on our benches already and they are not quiet and they are proper like you know they fought their way into the parliament they've had to go through so many more hurdles than most of us parliamentarians and are still finding the casual racism that is around Parliament every single minute of every single day, but they are trailblazing, and I have absolute no. I am. I am totally confident that one of them will easily be the first female uh, Prime Minister of Colour on our Labour bench, and it should be Labour that do it. All right. So we're coming up to seven o'clock, which means we're at the end of our hour. Uh, thank you so much, Angela, for taking the time uh, out of your busy, busy life. Um, you're doing a very good job. In your new role as deputy leader um, and thank you to everyone who's uh, been submitting questions 
Uh, and yeah, thank, thank you, everyone, and you know, Ramadan Mubarak. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Not that I'm long like now. Half an hour is it? Half an hour. <laughs> no, no, an hour and a half. Is it an hour and a half you've got yes. there? Yes, yes. I'd like to chime in and, and thank you, uh, Angela, on behalf of the Concordia community here. Thank you for taking out time to do this. We really appreciate it. Uh, and hopefully we'll get to do this in person someday in the not too distant future. Uh, Arik, thank you so much for hosting the session. Uh, thank you so much for the wonderful, insightful questions. Um, and um, you both have been